Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. Hopefully, if you watched the Super Bowl as a 49ers fan, you've had just enough time to start regaining your joy. I can't say that I was honestly pulling for either teams. Go Eagles, just say that. But I was definitely interested in the game as it related to my family's betting sheets. We had one that was based on the game or the score at the end of each quarter. And then we had another one that was just a little bit more fun. Um, I had questions on there like, how long will the national anthem be? Over or under 90 seconds? It was over, by the way. Um, And will Travis Kelsey propose to Taylor Swift at the end of the game? Now, on the former sheet, we did put each a little bit of money in, um, but the latter one was just for fun. And in truth, I was not alone because the American Gaming Association estimated that 68 million people would bet on this year's Super Bowl, wagering upward of $23 billion. And yet, while I am in no way a consistent gambler, I do make exceptions every once in a while for the occasional NCAA bracket or, of course, a Super Bowl game. No one denies that gambling is dangerous. Some would say, in fact, that gambling altogether is wrong, particularly for a Christian to do. Now, in the past, Jim, we've dedicated a few episodes to asking the question, is it okay for a Christian to fill in the blank? This feels like one of those. You know, is it okay... Yeah. Is it okay for a Christian to gamble? So can you walk us through the matrix that you've shared before, but again, would be helpful now for how we might even begin to answer or consider that question? Yeah. And if people want to see a visual for this and a kind of a a fuller uh, kind of elaboration, I would encourage them to see uh, my book called After I Believe, where this is kind of visualized. There's a graphic for it. And I kind of spend more time going through it. But here it is in, in essence. Uh, at least for a Christian, if you're going to answer a question, is it okay to do something? You begin by going to the authoritative guide for Christ's following, which is the Bible. And so we go to the Bible and we ask, okay, what does it have to say about this particular subject? And we're going to find that on any given subject, it's going to give us one of three things. It's going to give us either direct permission, like literally it says, yes, do this, or, or even a command to do it, but direct permission. Uh, and then, of course, we don't have to go any further. The answer is yes, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, Or it's going to give us a direct prohibition, an absolutely do not do this. Uh, Don't engage in this whatsoever. Okay, so that's a clear no. And so we can get a clear yes, we can get a clear no. Maybe, though, it doesn't have anything at all to say directly about it at all. All it does is give us some life principles that apply to this and any number of other subjects. So when it gives us just principles, it doesn't say yes, it doesn't say no, it gives us freedom. Freedom to pursue, but freedom in light of the biblical principles that would be relevant. Uh, so it's not just any kind of freedom. We have to be really clear on that. Uh, it's freedom informed by biblical principles as we exercise that freedom. And even that doesn't end our journey. Uh, because just because I have the freedom to do something, even if I choose to follow that freedom with biblical principles, then I have to ask the question, is it wise for me to do this? 
uh, because I have a particular background. I have a particular DNA. I have a particular temperament. I've got a personality type. I've got a family of origin. I've got a whole lot of stuff attached to who I am and how I'm wired up. So it may be foolish for me to do something, even dabble with something, even if I have the freedom in Christ. Uh, but it wouldn't be foolish, for example, say for someone like you. And obviously vice versa. And that's one of those things that we're all going to have to just wrestle with. But even that doesn't end it. There's one last thing. Even if you say, okay, I have the freedom to do something. Uh, I'm following biblical principles. For me and my background, it would not be foolish to do it. You have to ask yourself, how does this play out before a watching world? Mm -hmm. uh, and that really falls into two camps. Issues related to witness and issues related to weakness. When I talk about witness, what I mean is if I were to exercise this freedom publicly, uh, in front of a watching world, in light of where our current non-Christian culture stands, would it be akin to me saying loudly, publicly, and clearly, and plainly that I don't follow Jesus? In fact, I repudiate Jesus. Uh, would this be saying to the world that my allegiance is not to the living God? Uh, not a lot falls into that category, uh, but the Bible talks about it. And then there's also the weakness camp, meaning... If I were to exercise this freedom, are there situations where the exercise of it would be hurtful, harmful, detrimental to a fellow believer in Christ in terms of their attempt to follow Christ and perhaps my role in their life as a mentor or something like that? And there's some real issues there on various issues to think about. So those are the progressions that you need to go through on any number of subjects as you go to the Bible with a, is it okay to do this kind of question? Okay, so let's kind of follow that line of thinking then. The first step you mentioned was to go to the Bible to say, does to see if it has anything to say um, on the topic. So does the Bible have anything to say about gambling? I think it's a good question to ask because I'll tell you, a Gallup poll has found that six out of every 10 of us bought a lottery ticket in the last 12 months. Uh, and like you mentioned, there's a lot of bets <laughs> that go on between friends and family so even without getting into taking trips to places like Vegas or online gambling, this is something that a lot of us do um, recreationally. Yet something about saying the word gambling and Christian uh, doesn't flow right, sound right to some people. You know, like, what's wrong with this picture? So let's go to the Bible and see what it says and see if there's something biblical there or if it's just cultural or traditional or just what. So what does the Bible have to say? Nothing. <laughs> and really, this is just a stunning silence. It now, it records gambling. Like some Roman soldiers gambled for Jesus' foot, clothing at the foot of the cross, but it doesn't make a moral judgment about that gambling or say that the gambling was even wrong. Just an observation. That's what they did. You know, Roman soldiers were gambling for those clothes. Um, there isn't a single prohibition against gambling in the entire Bible. Not a single direct prohibition period, which means that it is a subject based on our progressions that we talked about that gets kicked into the freedom camp, but not without principles, because yeah. there are some huge principles, I would argue, in the Bible that would speak directly to the subject that would inform the exercise of our freedom in the gambling camp. Okay, so can you outline some of those principles for us? Sure. There are um, at least two that uh, I think would come quickly to mind for probably anybody who, who reflects on it. 
Uh, here's the first one. Don't gamble for money in place of working for money. Hmm. That's the first. It should never be a substitute for the hard work involved in getting a job, keeping a job, you know, doing a job. The value of working for money is celebrated throughout the Bible. For example, you find that principle mentioned over and over again. You know, one of the things that I, I, I can't stress enough, I, I refer a lot to the book of Proverbs hmm. and the great wisdom book, the Bible. And, um, and I'm chasing a rabbit here, that, but uh, let me just do it while I'm thinking about it. It, I can't stress enough the, the value of the book of Proverbs in the Bible and that wisdom. And one of the disciplines that I have, a personal discipline that I have, um, and I'm, I'm dangerously close to like a stickler on this one for my life, is that, um, is that I, I, I read from the Proverbs every day. Every day. And some people I know read a chapter of the Proverbs every day. It's got 31 chapters and that you can, you know, pretty much do it every month, you know, whether it has 30 or 31 days. But I read from the Proverbs every day as, as a discipline. And so I'm going through Proverbs at, at the very least once a year. And I just can't stress enough how, how important that is and that wisdom that is there for us. But anyway, I'm not trying to lift one scripture over another scripture, but just I, I do feel like there's here's this wisdom book. And, and I'm, I'm shocked at how many Christians really don't spend a lot of time with it. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, this principle that I mentioned, you know, work for a living is all throughout the book of Proverbs over and over again. It, it lifts up the value of working for a living uh, and how the key to financial success is hard work. And the Bible says that the math of money <laughs> works like this. Work hard. And you'll be successful. If you don't work hard, you won't be successful. You won't be financially solvent. Uh, now, nobody argues with that. Nobody thinks that laziness is a virtue. But there are subtle ways of being lazy and not working and trying to gamble your way to money or any other. And let's just go ahead and put a lot of get rich quick schemes that try to bypass working hard work for a long time. Um, is is one of them. And that's why the Bible's not a fan of gambling or gaming for that end. Sure. When you bypass the hard work route in search of the winning lottery ticket, the big payoff, or the poker tournament, it's a form of, of laziness. And not just laziness, it's a form of, of foolishness. The Bible calls it foolish. That's not me trying to be use a loaded term. That's the Bible's term for it. Uh, you, you, you put your money in on a chance and you could walk away losing your shirt. That's not the way we're supposed to run our financial lives. The Bible says that of hard work, you're, you're chasing fantasies. In fact, the Bible says that very explicitly in Proverbs 12. It says, when you do that, you're chasing fantasies. It says the same thing in Proverbs 28. It uses that word that, you know, hard workers got lots of food, but a person who chases fantasies ends up in poverty. And that's just a, a principle. That's just a theme. So that's first. Uh, don't gamble chasing a fantasy in place of work or in search of income. There's a difference between gaming for recreation and gaming for revenue. Mm, um, and I really don't want to get into like professional poker players. That's almost treated like a sport these days. And they might say, well, that's, a, but I, I, let's, let's just bracket that off for a minute. That's a very, very, very narrow niche, okay. uh, which brings up the second principle. Uh, when gaming of any kind, whether it involves gambling or not, when it becomes an addiction, when it becomes a compulsion uh, or a budget buster, it's gone too far. Mm. It needs to be reined in because the Bible calls us to be good stewards of our money. So if the first principle is don't gamble for money in place of working for money, the second principle is, excuse me, don't gamble at the expense of stewardship. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible teaches what is involved in basic, responsible, biblical stewardship. 
I've often tried to crystallize it to make it easy for people around here by calling it the 10, 10, 80 plan. Um, you know, 10% to God, 10% to long-term savings and live off the 80%. Um, and so that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, and that 80% is pretty critical. I mean, you make a thorough list of everything you want and need to plan for, and it has to come, come out of that 80 after you've saved, after you've tithed. Uh, give first, save second, live off the rest. Now, spending money on gambling or anything else for that matter, it doesn't have to be just gambling, anything that irresponsibly blows your budget. It could be eating out too much. It could be buying way too many expensive clothes or that fourth car that you really didn't need. Spending money on anything that eats away at good stewardship is not good. So if you blew past any reasonable recreational budget on fantasy football in such a way that it caused you to not be able to give to God, not be able to save for the future, not be able to pay a monthly bill, then that gambling becomes wrong uh, because it violated the stewardship that you've been called to practice. Mm. Okay. So again, that's don't gamble in place of working and then don't gamble at the expense of stewardship. I feel like the next part of this kind of paradigm is considering the role of wisdom here. So what about gambling and wisdom? You know, what about it? <laughs> Let's recap <laughs> what we've covered. Uh, is gambling expressly forbidden in the Bible? No. It isn't commanded either, but it's not prohibited. So it's kicked into the freedom category um, with two very important principles that we talked about. Don't gamble for money, as you mentioned, in place of working for money and don't gamble at the expense of biblical stewardship. So are we done? No. As you mentioned, that does come wisdom. And, and I don't want to repeat myself to what I've already said, but here's the heart of the wisdom issue. Um, your personal life history, how you are wired up. If you are compulsive or have an, a compulsive, addictive nature, and you know, you know, it's reared its head with gambling in the past in a way that took over your life or started to take over your life. It's probably not a freedom to enjoy. That would not be wise for you. Hmm. Okay. And then what about, you mentioned before about our witness, how something affects our witness as a Christian to others. So what about gambling there? Yeah, I think we need to be really careful here with some Careful nuancing here. Okay. Uh, there is nothing about buying a lottery ticket or sitting down in front of a blackjack table or a slot machine that would make anyone think you have disavowed Jesus. Uh, so it's not really an issue for those outside of the Christian faith. The weakness side, though, might still come into play. In Romans 14, Paul talked extensively about this. He says, live in such a way that you don't cause, you know, another believer to stumble and fall. That's the famous verse that's often trotted out. But in that context, it's very important to remember what Paul is saying. He's talking about what foods are acceptable to eat in light of how those foods were used in relation to the worship of false idols. If, if eating those foods would cause someone to stumble, in other words, giving the impression that you were somehow worshiping those idols yourself or supportive of those idols or participating in that idol worship. It's better not to eat or drink or anything else. It might cause them as a fellow believer to wonder what in the heck is going on and, and what are you saying about, should I start embracing that theology? Should, should I, should I kind of have a, a polytheistic view of the world or, or something like that? But Paul isn't talking about those Christians who are legalistically offended that you exercise your freedom to say, drink a glass of wine or have a beer or play poker. 
he goes out of his way, actually, in that context to say that Christians should not do that to each other in terms of freedom. But he does say, look out for the weak. And the weak are those who are spiritually vulnerable to that area of freedom and you need to be sensitive to their vulnerability. So let me give you an example. Uh, for example, with drinking. Think about a new Christian who came to Christ out of alcoholism. Uh, do you want to take them out for a drink? I probably wouldn't. Uh, with gaming, uh, think about someone who was addicted to gambling, lost his house and retirement over it, came to Christ out of that wreckage. Uh, I wouldn't ask him to go vacation with you for a blackjack tournament in Vegas. This is just common sense. That would be using your freedom uh, in an area where you're fine, but they are weak in a way that could very inevitably pop, you know, lead them to stumble, lead them back into re-enter a lifestyle that they desperately needed to, to leave. So don't do that. And again, I mean, there's so many others. We can't just let's not make this all about things like drinking or gambling. It'd be like, you know, someone who has just lost uh, 100 pounds and needed to and are really struggling. I wouldn't say, hey, I just bought you a $5,000 gift certificate at Cheesecake Factory. Have a happy year. I mean, so this goes across the board. But again, I think these kinds of situations are rare. Yeah. Uh, and it has nothing to do with whether, for example, you go to Vegas on your own in a, in a healthy, responsible way. Hmm. I feel like since I already admitted at the top of the podcast that I just did this kind of <laughs> gambling a couple of days ago, I feel like it's a little late to ask this, but just bringing it all home, you know, thinking through this progression that you've just outlined. I mean, so following what you just followed, you know, the, since the Bible doesn't prohibit it, if it's, if you're not blowing your income, blowing your stewardship budget, you don't have anybody around for whom this would be, you know, something that would, that would cause them to, to trip or fail. It's not um, compromising your witness as a Christian, I can gamble. Yeah. Yeah. That's the question. Does it mean <laughs> that you can buy a lottery ticket? Does it mean you can play a slot machine? I mean, if I follow these principles, if I work honestly, if I steward my money, well, there's not a personal wisdom or community weakness issue at hand. Are we saying, am I saying that we can spend money gaming recreationally without guilt and enjoy it? Just like I would spend it rec recreationally for eating out, buying a movie ticket, uh, going to a show. Can you use it for gaming? I would say yes. I would say biblically the answer is yes. Uh, you know, it's so, you know, so interesting, though, even as I say that, there may still be some people like just like going, oh, but I just I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And yet and yet what's so interesting about that is, is that the, the very person who feels that way is gambling all the time and they don't even realize it. They're doing the exact same thing. And it's interesting how we have this in our head in a way that may not be that may be more cultural than biblical, maybe more traditional than it is biblical. Uh, for example, um, uh, if I were to offer you a ticket for a dollar for the chance of winning a car in order to raise money for a local school, did I just invite you into a raffle or a gambling moment with the lottery? Oh, interesting. See, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I invited you into both or you did both. I mean, that was that was gambling. That was a lottery. Let's just call it what it is. Don't call it a school raffle. It was just a school raffle. It was a lottery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you had a chance at a car for a buck. OK, you took a chance, played that game. Uh, but a raffle just sounds more Jesus-y, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, but it's a lottery. Here's another example. Uh, you sit in front of a machine 
and you put in money to play a game. This game lets you win or lose. If you lose, well, I mean, you have the, the fun of playing the game, which is what most people do it for, but you lose what you put in. But you still got to play, even though you lost the game. But you have the fun of playing. You got the bells, you got the whistles, you got the sound effects, you got the features, you know, the fun of playing, you know. And it took you a while to kind of lose what you put in, but it was fun. You know, you had fun. You sat there, yeah. But if you win, oh, gosh, bonus. You get the equivalent of money. Uh, you get money or maybe you get the equivalent of money that you can cash in for something, which is kind of a bonus kick that makes it all fun. Now, did I just describe a slot machine in Vegas or what you did this past Friday at Dave & Buster's? Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like an arcade. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Again, that the answer is yes. They are the same. Mm-hmm. They are the same. They are the same. At Dave & Buster's, you just got tickets to use in exchange for some cheap, overpriced stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. But it's the same game reward system. And let me go further. I, I would argue this just like knocking over bottles at a fair or throwing a ring, trying to get it over a bottle. Or trying to make a basket with a basketball for a prize. I paid you some money. I did this. And most people say, oh, that's just fun. That's just fun. Same thing. Mm. Well, so that's- but I would say the same principles would apply. If you went down to the fair with your... Well, no, I think there are exceptions. If you spend 20 bucks on a 50-cent shot to get an overpriced teddy bear for your grandchild, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but if it starts getting to be 200 or more, you might want to rethink your basketball skills. I was about. I thought you were about to say the opposite about yeah. If, if you nah, grandkids, you yeah, yeah. You not for your own kids, kids, but your grandkids, you can do okay. it. Okay, all right, good. So if you can tell my kids that, that would be really helpful. <laughs> oh, okay, well, so let me let me ask one final question then. So, it, knowing what you just explained, and maybe it's just because we haven't really thought about that, but why do you think so many Christians do get hung up on this? Then, I think there's a good reason. There's a good reason. I think we ought to give. Christians who were hung up on this or have concerns, credit. Uh, and then I think there's a bad reason. Hmm. So let's let's get the good reason out first. The one reason that is good, that Christians might be a little weird about this, is because they've seen lives destroyed by it. Yeah. Uh, and they've never really had someone teach them about exercising freedom in light of biblical principle. Uh, they've just seen it either as a you don't or you do. And if you do, they've never had the freedom informed by principles, so they've never really been mentored in this area. And for them, the whole thing is negative. And I totally get that. It's not really what the Bible says, okay? But I can understand if that's the way you were raised or exposed to it, you would have a knee-jerk reaction to that. If you've seen people who have experienced this freedom without the principles, and you know the pain of that, then I get it. Now, I would caution, though, to then therefore say nobody should do it. Well, my goodness. I mean, if you apply that across the board, I mean, go back to our gluttony saying, so, okay, so does that mean we need to make a rule? Not only should you never gamble, you should never have dessert. Why? Because you could you could, you could, could fall into gluttony. Right. Well, I mean, if you make that everything, then you start falling into another camp, which is the bad reason. It's called legalism. Hmm. Um, Christians have been hung up on this, I think, not because the Bible says it's wrong, because it doesn't, but because of legalism. And the idea of legalism is to protect the principles in order to protect the principles, in order to protect the bad from happening, you've got to take away the freedom. Uh, And which then reduces spirituality to just outward practices and uh, norms. And this is obviously what set up all the tension between Jesus and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. We've talked about this before, but since, you know, people listen to this podcast and all different kinds of, you know, orderings and times and everything else, 
I'm going to risk repeating a little bit about this because I think it's very important for this subject because legalism is such a critical thing. The teachers of the law, just so that we understand legalism, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees of Jesus' day were extremely religious people who were considered the holiest of their day. And the reason was because of what they had done is they had taken the scriptures, the Old Testament, and calculated that it contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And they lifted those out and they vowed to obey every one of them. And they did all that calculus and applied it to human life. And just to make sure that they didn't break one of those rules, they made rules about the rules and laws about the laws. In fact, they came up with another 1,500 additions to the 248 and the 365. And all that oral tradition was gathered together into what is known as the Mishnah. Even that wasn't enough. Then they made rules about the rules around the rules that they had made around the rules in order not to break the rules that they had made around the scriptures. They called that the Gemara. And together, the Mishnah and the Gemara became known as the Talmud uh, gathered together. So how did all that play out? Rules about the rules about the rules about the rules, you know, ever increasing concentric circles to protect this kernel of scripture, you know, and, and you know, on and on and on it went. Well, you know, as, as I've kind of, I say joke, but it's not a joke. I mean, these are actually rooted in, in what actually they did. To say the, the Lord, to avoid saying the Lord's name in vain, they refused to even say God's name, even in honor, respect, worship, or prayer. To avoid committing adultery, they would lower their heads. Whenever they would see a woman coming that way, they would lower their heads, and, and so they wouldn't make eye contact with a woman, and, and they would run into things as a result. And so they most holy were known as bleeding Pharisees because they would often have blood and things on their forehead because they were running into sides of houses and things like that. And that was worn as a badge of pride. When they read that they should rest on the Sabbath, they actually calculated, they said, you know, that major calculation. So how many steps is work? Hmm. And they determined that to take anything beyond 50 steps on the Sabbath was worked and therefore violated the law. On a holy day, a person could eat, but they could not cook. Um, you could bandage a wounded person, but you couldn't apply medicine. If you're a woman, you couldn't look in the mirror because if you looked in the mirror, you might see gray hair. If you saw a gray hair, you might pluck it out. If you pluck it out, that was considered work. It was just completely on and on and on. These kinds of examples went. And Jesus said very directly about this. He said, you know, you experts in the law. He said, he said, woe to you. I mean, and that, that was his phrase, woe to you because you're weighing people down with all of these burdens that they just can't carry. And, and the interesting thing about that denunciation, about the word woe, um, is a very special word. It was, it was, a, it was a prophet's word. It was, it was, it was code. Uh, when a prophet uttered a word from God that was positive, they began with the word blessed. You know, this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he said things like, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful. When judgment was being uttered, a prophet would begin with the word woe, you know, and that's how we know how Jesus felt about legalism. He always said, woe to you, teachers of the law, when you do these kinds of legalistic burdens on people. So he gave it the ultimate prophetic denunciation. And Jesus hated legalism because it was the burden that they just could not carry, a load of rules packaged on them that was making spirituality anything but you know light and easy and, care, and, and the way it was meant to be in terms of a free relationship with God. He, he just hated it. It killed hearts. It killed spirits. Um, not only does it cripple people's spiritual life, but it makes a mockery of it because when it's all about legalism, then you can play the game like a tax lawyer, mm -hmm. you know, uh, loopholes and technicalities, the letter of the law, but never the spirit. 
And he was after their hearts. You know, he made it very clear. I didn't come to abolish the law. That's not what this is about. Um, I'm just telling you that if you think that what the Pharisees are doing illegalism, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. You got to go way beyond that. And of course, what that meant was um, be different altogether. A totally different kind of spirituality, not a set of do's and don'ts, uh, but who you were you know, as a person. Um, and, and we're all vulnerable to this. We're all, we're all very, um, we can follow into a legalistic set of rules and regulations and try to reduce spirituality uh, in any number of areas, any number of areas, because our tendency is to think like a Pharisee. It really is. I think we just need to own that to make our spiritual lives about what some have called these identity or boundary markers, these outward superficial displays of vocabulary or dress or style that tell the world who we are. I once read it described, uh, put this way, it's not original with me, but, you know, if you were driving through the Haight-Asbury district of San Francisco during the 1960s and pulled up uh, to a stoplight next to a van plastered with peace signs driven by a long hair, tie-dyed, granny glasses wearing person, you would assume you encountered a hippie. If you were um, back in the 1980s and you came across a BMW driven by someone in Gucci shoes, wearing a Rolex, Rolex watch and moose hair who's nibbling on brie, you would know that you had encountered a yuppie. But we can do the same thing when it comes to spiritual matters. What does it mean to encounter a Christian? Well, we've created our own little look, haven't we? Mm -hmm. uh, we listen to certain music. We talk in certain spiritual buzz talk. We follow extraneous moral codes of what we do or do not do, whether the Bible prohibits it or not. We wear certain messages on our T-shirts or our bracelets. We participate in certain activities. We abstain from various things and think we're being spiritual or engaging in a personal relationship with God. But that's what we do. It is not necessarily who we are because spirituality is not about a religion. It's about a relationship. So the truly spiritual life, the one that lives by the law, goes beyond the righteousness, the legalism of the Pharisees, beyond the spirituality of identity markers, uh, beyond do's and don'ts, he was after, Jesus was after people to live out the purpose for which the law was given. Not in some external, superficial, legalistic way, but through a transformed heart. Mm. Uh, he was saying that the spirituality of the Pharisees, of legalism, was was no spirituality at all. Dead, lifeless, empty. Uh, made life with God all about doing rather than, than being. Um, and so... And for obvious reasons, I mean, I mean, you can you can set up your list, your policies and your, your priorities and your, your rules and regulations. You can follow them to the to the T and have absolutely no intimacy and no life changing, no transformation, no connection with God whatsoever. Um, so uh, let's bring this around to what we're talking about. <laughs> this is like way after that. Um, uh, if you're hung up on whether you can go to Vegas. And yeah sit in front of a slot machine and play some games or whatever you want to do. And, and you make not doing that, even if following God's principles in the context of freedom, what it means to follow Christ, um, uh, um, uh, allows you to do that. Then I, I think that you've missed what the Christ life is all about. I, I really do. We just can't give in to the lie and the lure of legalism. Because if you go that route, you'll miss out on what grace has to offer. Um, uh, which is a personal, vibrant, freeing, life-changing relationship with the living God as forgiver, leader, transformer. And if you've missed out on that, you've missed out on everything. Mm -hmm. So back to our subject, take the principles uh, in one hand 
take your freedom in the other, vacation in Vegas and have at it if you will. Um, I hear Adele's residency there is amazing. But do it in Christ and in a way that honors Christ. And I would add, you have the freedom to do that in Christ. Mm. Well, thank you, Jim. And if you are new to the podcast and you're thinking, man, that was a really helpful paradigm, I wonder how that applies to other topics, then I suggest you check out our show notes. We'll link some there because Jim has kind of answered this question on a whole um, range of hot topic issues, such as you know whether it's okay for a Christian to drink or to um, attend a gay wedding, to do yoga, get a tattoo, kind of goes on and on. So if that would be helpful for you, I hope you check it out. But whether this is your first or episode or you can't count at this point. We are so glad that you joined us and we hope you will next week too.